And Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. I thank you for your mercy and grace. We uh, thank you for the word of God. We pray as we look into it this morning and we go from one subject to another, you'd give us clarity that you'd help us to be those who bind and loose correctly according to, according to the terms of your new covenant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with everyone. Uh, if you remember last time, we were talking about how not to do binding and loosing. Now, let me just define what binding and loosing was. We define binding and loosing is that which we are morally bound to do or not do. That's binding. When you are loosed, we explain that that meant you were free to do or not do something. So let's give a specific example. We learned that we are no longer bound to the old covenant. Do you remember under the old covenant, they could not eat certain types of foods? Well, Jesus in Mark 7:19 declared all foods clean. Therefore, we are morally loosed to eat the foods or not eat the foods, depending on whether we want to eat them or not. That would be loosing, okay? But under the new covenant, it is still immoral to murder. So we are morally bound to not murder. Uh, we are also morally bound to love the Lord our God, love him with our whole being and to love our neighbors ourselves. We're still morally bound to that. In fact, Jesus claims that's the fulfillment of the entire law. Love the Lord your God with all your being, if I could summarize, and love your neighbors yourself. So what we came to then is what binding and loosing truly is, is living under the terms of the new covenant defined by the apostles. And so we left off on this passage, and I want to break this passage down a little bit more because I think you'll see some amazing insights as to how important the apostles of Jesus Christ are in binding and loosing. So remember, we came to this, this first confession of, by Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus said this to Peter. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, I want to remind you of the grammar. I explained this last time, but let's do a little review. I'll pull up my pointer. Notice in red it says, whatever you bind on earth, that's what's called a subjunctive mood. The idea is if you should happen to bind something... That is you, Peter, one of the apostles. Remember I said he was the first among peers? Meaning it's not just Peter that's given this right, it's all of the apostles. And I'll lay this out here as we go. But notice, it's whatever they may bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In blue is God's response. Red is what man does, that is the apostles. But in blue, that phrase is what's called a future perfect passive construction. So what's a, pa what's a uh, passive? Well, first of all, it's something that God is doing. He's the one who's going to do this. So this is a divine passive. Let's talk about the idea that it's perfect. Perfect typically has the idea that something is completed and its effect is always with you. So think of um, we in English, we talk about tenses. We say that I either ran to the store, passed, I am running to the store present, or I will run to the store in the future. Greek has that, but it's also called an aspectual language. And what that means is they focus on whether the event is ongoing or whether it was completed in the past or whether it's going to happen in the future, etc. But So think of this analogy. Think of I, if you look at a football game, 
You can look at the football game as completed. All the quarters are played. The score is in the books. The Vikings won. I'm just being uh, wishful here. <laughs> 23 to 13. That would be... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's subjunctive. Bob said the mood. Yeah, that would be a, a will or a desire. But the idea is if I look at the whole football game as a whole and the score is in the books, that's a perfect tense idea. It's always with us. It's complete. It's perfect. And it's always with us. The score will always be that. But let's say I am an announcer. It's during the third quarter. And I'm talking about the play going on. That would be the present tense because it's ongoing action. It's still in the process of playing out. So the reason I'm pointing this out is what this shows us in this phrase, because it's a perfect tense, this is something God has ordained in the past eternally. And therefore, it's not that the disciples are writing checks that God simply just signs. Whatever you decide, guys, it's okay with me, God is saying. No, that's not what's being stated. What's being stated is that God has already determined what we are morally bound to and morally loose to, and it's the apostles who will be in their writings as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit will be revealing to the church. So again, it's, uh, and I like this comment. This is why I wrote it here. Future perfect passives prove that God's moral decisions predate that of the apostles. The apostles are fi- following God's will. It's not that God is simply backing up with a rubber stamp. The apostles will. Are you with me? Yes, Eric. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, so I want to make sure, I f- see if I understand this right. Um, future perfect passive, so like shall have been bound in heaven. Does that mean that God bound, bound he binded it in the past, it is bound in the present, and it will always be bound in the future. It's perfect. It's past, present, and future. Is it exactly all, right? All of the so above? you're exactly right, Eric. As the apostles write the scriptures, those decisions have already been made, and so they shall have been enforced already. Yeah. Would be the idea. So the act has already been done, but it's always with us, even into the future. See, because exactly. God is just outside of time, you know. Yes. So, okay. Well, good. Yeah. That's helpful. Yeah, yep. thank you. Very good. Yeah, um, anyone else on that? Let me come to another issue. I want you to see here that Jesus said that the apostle Peter, notice in the box on the screen. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. You know how it's, uh, Scripture interprets Scripture. I just wanted to want you to get your thoughts on this. It reminds me of another Scripture, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added unto you. And then the f- so it seems like there's a parallel meaning here. Do you see that at all? Um, the, the command there that you just um, alluded to, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you, is the command by Christ to first seek righteousness in one's life and therefore the gospel and therefore the will of God rather than the fleeting pleasures here and now. That's one way to look at it. Yeah, but I'm thinking that uh, when he gives so many parables, this is the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. It's like a dragnet. This is like the kingdom of God. So for us to seek the kingdom of God, and then he gives us the ability. He gives. That's the the, uh, operative thing is he gives it to us. That's operative. That's active. But so therefore we have the uh, ability, uh, if you will, God-given ability, to bind and to loose. And... um, so I'm thinking to myself, uh, 
that's why I need God all the more because it's my yes. interpretation then. This is not good. You know, I mean, I don't right. know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We need God. So, yeah, we have as Christians the ability to do binding and loosing, but we are bound to the terms of the new covenant. And so that's already been laid for us. And that's what I want everyone to see is notice that term that you see in the box, the keys. It's very important that we see this term, the keys. The keys are given to Peter. Now, don't fall into the Catholic idea that Peter is uniquely going to be someone who speaks for Christ and none of the other apostles do. Again, Peter is seen here as the first among peers. The idea is that think of keys as referring to the administrative authority of the kingdom, that the apostles will speak the very words of Christ. When they write, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us the very words of God. And so in that sense, they have the administrative keys of the kingdom. And I'll show you how this is an allusion back to Isaiah 22 in the next slide. But what I want you to see is, remember earlier, in fact, if you have your Bibles, look one verse earlier, Matthew 16, 18. And by the way, I just wrote the paraphrase down so I don't have all of the wordage. But I want you to see where Jesus says this, Matthew 16, 18. He says to Peter, after the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says to him in Matthew 16, 18, he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay, and then he goes on to here, tell him that he will give him the keys. Now, what's he doing? Jesus is making a play off of words. Peter's name, Petros, means rock. Okay, that's what it means. In fact, the Aramaic, Cephas, means large stone. Okay, so he's making a play on words. Upon this rock, he's going to build his kingdom. Now, I think there may be a little bit of what's called a double entendre, a little bit of a double meaning. Do you remember where the confession of Christ by Peter happens? It happens at Caesarea Philippi. Do you remember that? In the beginning of Matthew 16, it tells you that. Um, I know some of the people that have been to Israel, you recognize Caesarea Philippi. That's at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was, in some sense, the headquarters of the demonic realm. It's where a lot of Baal worship happened. On Mount Hermon, it was believed that this is where the Nephilim came down. And so there may be a little bit of irony that you have this huge rock, Mount Hermon, that stands for, in some sense, what the demonic realm is doing in the world. But Jesus says, it's upon Peter, it's upon that rock. After his confession of Christ, it's upon the rock of Peter that he's going to build his church. So think of this huge rock. It's like being next to the Rocky Mountains. And it's known as the headquarters of the demonic realm. And Jesus says to Peter, it's upon you that I'm going to build my kingdom and the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Yes. Actually, um, an explanation I heard, too, that I just thought was, for me, the most wonderful thing, that the rock is actually what Peter said. Yes, um, and, absolutely. And I thought that is the most amazing thing. Why didn't I ever see that before? Versus... Linda, it's interesting you say that. Um, I, I do think it's ref- referring to the apostles' authority, and I'll explain why I believe that. But just but that's one of the like views. it's not yeah. the Catholic Church saying Peter himself, like you know how they're saying he's the first pope. Ex- exactly, but again, he's the first among peers. Okay, and that's what I want to prove to you because okay. we're not done with this exposition. Okay. You're right. But it's, it's more than the statement, it's upon Peter, because what he's an apostle, and he's the first among peers. So let me just keep going with this for just a moment. How many in here know that stones are 
used in the scriptures to refer to the apostles. Has everyone seen that? Think about Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20, the church has been built upon what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being what? The chief cornerstone. So you have a foundation laid of the church. It's comprised of a bunch of stones, which are the apostles. The chief cornerstone that holds the whole foundation together is Christ. That's the foundation of the church. In fact, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verse 14. And you're going to see something in the New Jerusalem, in the New Heavens, New Earth, New Jerusalem. Remember, that's the section of Revelation 21. The New Jerusalem, though, exists now. But Revelation 21 talks about this memorial that will be there forevermore regarding the apostles. Revelation 21, 14. It says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Are you with me? So the apostles are the foundation. Again, Peter is just the first among many. Don't take... The idea that Jesus singles him out is a, is a Roman Catholic idea that he is the only one who speaks for God and every other bishop or pope that comes in the future is going to be in the lineage of Peter. No, he's the first among many. Yes, Peter. Petros. Yeah. <laughs> Very small rock. Pebble. Pebble in the, in the shoe. Um, isn't Christ really the rock? I mean, he just goes through the confession, correct, correct, of who Christ is, and he says, this has been revealed to you from my Father above. And, um, I mean, it couldn't be on little Peter the humanoid, uh, you know, that our salvation is based upon. No, um, what I would say is let's let Jesus use the metaphors as he sees fit. And so if he's using the metaphor regarding Peter, let's just go with it. In other words, there are times like in Isaiah that Jesus, Isaiah 28, 16, he is the chief or the, the, the stone laid in Zion. Right. And remember, Paul picks up on that in Romans 9, whoever trusts on him will not be disappointed. Yeah. So there are metaphors that Christ is the rock. Certainly, he's the, I think one of the images of Moses up on Mount Sinai when he's yeah. hidden in the cleft of the rock. I'm not claiming the rock is Christ, but it's a symbolic thing that points to our need to have atonement, to be shielded from the, the, the glory of God, as it were. So here's my point. Let's let Jesus make the metaphor. Here, the metaphor is clearly a playoff of Peter. And so his name is Cephas in the Aramaic, which means large stone. No, no, I get uh, that. Petros is the name. So Jesus, again, the author is controlling the meaning of the text. Matthew is inspired, recording what Jesus is saying, saying that upon this rock, Peter, I call you Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. The point is these men are unique. They are the ones who are called. They are the ones that God is going to do miraculous deeds, proving that they alone speak for God. They are going to be the ones who are given his very words. Remember, Jesus himself says later in Matthew 10:40, whoever receives you, my apostles, receives me. So central are the apostles that if you reject what they're saying, you're rejecting Christ. 
And so that's what he's laying out before us but here. I understand you're establishing kind of a, an authority. Yep. Uh, I get that, but I would just say that probably John MacArthur's annotations differ from what you said, so I'd love to bounce it off of you after the fact. Yeah, no, no, that's good. I just, again, let's let Matthew speak to us. Is Matthew's point that the confession is the rock? Or let's read it again. In fact, let's read Matthew 16, 18. In fact, does somebody have it where they could just read it for me? Yes. I promise to give it back. I, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Amen. So in other words, he singles out Peter. He doesn't say, he could have said, upon this confession I will build my church, or upon the word you have spoken I will build my church. But instead he singles out Petros. You are Peter, and upon this rock. Again, who is Peter? He's first among equals. In other words, he's, he's one of the apostles. Yes, Laverne. Well, I've always thought that it was the rock of his confession that it, that it was about. So yeah, I've been comfortable. But again, I think there's, there's more to it than that. They're going to be doing the binding and loosing. Yeah. Um, they're going to be the stones that are laid that the whole church is built upon, Ephesians 2.20. You have the stones. The, uh, so to me, the image is the apostles themselves. Yes, the confession is central. That's how they become into a relationship with Christ. But again, if that was the intention to say it was the confession, Matthew could have recorded it differently. He could have recorded Jesus saying, upon your confession, I will build my church. But he singles out Peter in his name. In because fact, Peter was the one who the Holy Spirit gave it to him that he was the Christ. That he was the Absolutely. All I'm saying is if you have two choices and you can say it's either the confession or it's Peter, and you see out throughout the Bible that, wait a minute, the apostles are in fact stones that the church has been built upon. Ephesians 2.20, the apostle Paul speaks for Christ, are we right? Yeah. So when he says that the church has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, well, that sounds a lot like what Jesus was saying. Where did Paul get that idea? And we're living stones also. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. We're living stones, and we're built what? On top of the foundation. And Christ absolutely. was the rock that followed the children of Israel through the Amen, country. amen, exactly right. So to me, I would just differ with MacArthur on that point. I think that that's a better reading is that it is Peter. Um, I would cite D.A. Carson as an example who will hold to my view, R.T. France, uh, Thomas Schreiner, Douglas Moo. Uh, some of the best evangelical scholars we would have would say, no, um, what, what we have done as evangelicals, if we want to make excuses trying to get around this idea of the papacy, we don't have to believe in the papacy. That's never, that's never taught in the scriptures. There's never an, a, a succession line that comes from Peter alone that leads to the bishops being the pontiff or the vicar of Christ. That is not taught in the scriptures. But because we're so zealous as Protestants to not see that, and, and it's not true, it's, we read around what Jesus is really saying, and we lose the profundity of it. That's how central the apostles were. Christ is going to build his church upon the foundation of his apostles. So says the apostle Paul. Let's let the apostle Paul speak 
rather than John MacArthur on this one in Ephesians 2.20. Let's look at John in Revelation 21.14. Very striking that the very foundation stones of the kingdom are in fact uh, that of the apostles. So, yes, uh, Ryan. Um, Let's hear what Peter has to say in 1 Peter 2. Verse 4, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this imagery of the stone is used all over, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Amen. Well said. So, yeah. I'm sorry. Levon. Well... Um, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the types and so forth of the Old Testament. Amen. And so I've always thought as the rock is referring to Christ, simply because um, in the Old Testament, um, God says, I am the only rock, Yep. and um, nor is there any other rock. The reference to a rock is referred to God. And these people come up and they say, well, who do men say that I am? And Jesus says, I am the Christ. And it looks to me like they're referring to Jesus being the rock. Right. So let's, let's look at this again. Did Jesus say, I am Petros and upon this rock I will build my church or did he say you are Petros and upon this rock I will build my church absolutely Jesus is the one who's building it so again he's the chief cornerstone if we follow the imagery into Ephesians 2.20 but what I'm just saying is let's just use what Jesus is saying and not try to read into and try to refute Roman Catholicism which wasn't in mind and let's not try to go see there's a lot of metaphors that are used in the Bible and we have to take them as they come does that make sense? Yeah, Bob. Yeah, when I originally wrote about this in yeah. 1992, I think, the problem that happened to me early in my Christian life was the assumption that if an analogy or a parable or something is used in a certain way in one place, right. it has to mean the same thing every time it's used. Right, which is a misnomer. But that just doesn't uh, uh, go along with how language works. Uh, we can use various things to, to illustrate or make an analogy to something else. Now, originally the problem was somewhere else it says that Satan is bind the strong man. Right, right. Well, so therefore people took that word bind, same word, and applied it to, well, then it's our job to bind Satan, otherwise nobody can get saved. Amen. But because it's the same word, Deo and Lu or bind and loose doesn't imply what they said it implied. The same word doesn't always have to mean the same thing. So the simple principle is this. The Holy Spirit inspired author is the one whose meaning we should learn. Amen. Okay. So Matthew can use a term in a way that may be used elsewhere. Amen. And the other thing is that parables are not allegories. Right. With multiple points, they're making a key point. Exactly. So well said. that's a it, very good point, Bob. In this case, I think 
if you just look at the Greek, Petros, that's Peter. Petra is rock. But then Peter had plenty of problems. Peter wasn't oh, yes. infallible. Absolutely. But eventually God used him in the other apostles. Amen. Another way of looking at this is when we look at that term, the keys, who are the keys given to? Are the keys, now Christ ultimately has the keys of the kingdom, but notice he says, I will give you the keys. Does everyone see that? Second person singular, the you. Does everyone see that? So who are the keys given to? So Jesus has them. Who is he giving them to? Well, who is he speaking to? Peter. He's speaking to Peter, right? So to Peter, he's given the keys. Now, why is that important? Because the keys represent the administrative authority of the kingdom. And this is built off of Isaiah 22. Let me turn your attention to Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22 occurs in 701 B.C. And that's where Hezekiah, he's the king in Judah. And he has a man who is the head of his household. The head of the household was a man who spoke with the very authority of the king himself. The man's name was Shebna. The problem with Shebna is he's very arrogant. In fact, he's rebuked in Isaiah 22:16 for wanting to glorify himself rather than Yahweh. In fact, he wanted to build a tomb that was very ornate to glorify himself. You can read about that in Isaiah 22:16. And so what we find here is right here in Isaiah 22:20 20 through 22, listen to how God removes the keys of the kingdom from Shebna to Eliakim. He says, Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then he says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. How important was the head of the king's household? That he was so important is that when he made a treaty, it was as if the king Hezekiah himself had made the treaty. He was the one who had the administrative keys of the kingdom. And so it's been given from Shebna to Eliakim. So who ultimately has the authority in the kingdom? It's the king. In the same way, Jesus has all authority. He has the kingdom. But in Matthew 16, he's giving the keys to Peter, one of the apostles. Again, one among many. The other apostles, they would certainly have the same authority. That's the idea. And so they speak bindingly for Christ. Yes, Peter. So I'm not trying to get bogged down, but because... Because my version of Bible, the Bible and MacArthur's interpretation is there. Yeah. So I may be interpreting it improperly, and that's why I want to digress here for a yeah. moment. Yep. So all of this takes place. You say context is king, right? Yes. All this takes place right after Peter's confession of who Christ is. Amen. Okay. Amen. Yep. So that's where I can see where MacArthur may have the implied implication that indeed he's talking about Christ, not Peter. Right. The only problem is, again, when we talk about context, context is king. But when we talk about context, think of concentric circles. We have to start within the immediate context. What's the immediate context? Does Jesus say, upon this confession, I will build my church? No, he says, upon 
Petros, right? I call you Peter, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. And so he's playing off of Peter. Right. Okay. So, so MacArthur's point- saying what's implied. He's saying it's implied. Yeah, I don't think so. I think we have to go here with what's explicit rather than implicit. Okay. Um, so he has to read into something saying it's implied. Right. What I'm saying is I think that that, again, is a bias because we are so biased against Rome. And by the way, Rome is wrong. There is no succession of bishops that come from Peter, but we don't have to change the meaning of what Jesus is saying because somehow the Catholics may use this in a wrong way. That's what I'm saying. And so what I'm saying is just let Jesus speak. When he says, uh, I, you know, he's, who, who again, who was given the keys? Does Jesus have the keys? Yes, but he gives them to Peter. So if that's true, if he's giving them to Peter, then wouldn't it make sense that Peter is the rock? And upon this rock, why? Because he has the keys. So just as Eliakim could speak for the king, Peter can speak for the king. Eliakim was given the keys of the kingdom. We see this right in Isaiah 22. Who else? So Eliakim can speak for Hezekiah the king. The apostle Peter can speak for Jesus the king. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you're absolutely right. But he's one who is called an apostle. What what are the four things that are true of an apostle that aren't true of any other human being on the planet? Number one, they were objectively called. They didn't have a subjunctive unction. Remember that. They didn't sit eating their Cheerios at breakfast and say, you know, I think I'm going to be an apostle today. Jesus Christ supernaturally intervened in his life. What I mean by that is because he's God. And Jesus is the one who called him personally. Uh, What else is true of the apostles? They did miraculous deeds. So, for example, if Peter's shadow would fall upon someone, they would be healed. Okay? We see that in the book of Hebrews, that God testified them doing various signs and wonders, it says. The third thing that's true of them is they were all eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Fourth thing that was true is that they were personally instructed by Christ. Those four things are not true of any other human being. And so that's the importance of the apostles. And so, again, they're the ones who are going to give us the binding and loosing through the scriptures. Yes, Laverne. Speaking about Eliakim, he is, in typology, a picture of Christ. Um, Eliakim, right. What I would say is Hezekiah, in a sense, is the picture of Christ. He's the king. Eliakim would be very much like the apostles. Exactly right. Amen. Exactly right. Good, good job, Laverne. I think that's exactly right. There's a typology there. Absolutely. Yep. In fact, let me just show you where Jesus is depicted as having the keys as well. Let me show you uh, Revelation 3.7. Turn your Bibles there. Uh, notice on the screen as you're turning the key. We're going to look at that again. So ultimately, the king is the one who gives it, but he bestows it here upon Peter and in Matthew 16, but in Isaiah's day, the king had bestowed it upon Eliakim. Revelation 3, 7. Remember, this is the message to the church of Philadelphia, one of the seven churches. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So notice the Messiah is the one ultimately has the, the key of David, the key of the kingdom. 
But in Matthew 16, just as that was deposited from Hezekiah to Eliakim, in Matthew 16, it's deposited from Christ to the apostles. That's how we are to see it. Okay. Now, continuing on, let's look at Matthew 18, another time when this binding and loosing comes up. And this has to do with church discipline. So let's start in Matthew 18, 15, verse, and through verse 17. We'll read that together. Then I'll put up the other verses on the screen. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Notice how Jesus institutes church discipline. He says, if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Okay, so stop there. If some brother or sister is sinning and you bring it to their attention, you would say, hey, you know what, you're doing this and that's a violation of the new covenant. I'm concerned for you. And they change. They say, oh, you're right. Of course, this isn't right. I'm going to repent. Well, you've won your brother or implied sister, and that's as far as it has to go. But notice in verse 16, it says, But if he does not listen to you, implied or she, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Notice in verse 16, we'll stop there, you have the citation from Deuteronomy 19.15, that you're to take two or three witnesses. Now, just a quick aside, remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, which will occur in Matthew 17, there are two or three witnesses on the Mount giving confirmation as to who Christ is. You have Moses and Elijah, the Law and the Prophets, and you have the Heavenly Father himself says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Okay, so just think about the idea of how important two or three witnesses are so that everything is going to be established by the way, 1 Timothy 5, just one more connection. The same treatment is to be afforded to the elder. If you're going to bring an accusation against an elder, two or three witnesses, meaning they're not treated any worse than another believer, but they're not treated any better either. It's the same treatment. That's one of the thing that, one thing that Paul reveals, 1 Timothy 5. Notice verse 17, he says, If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, this would be step four, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's four stages. You go to the person individually. If they don't listen to that, you bring your two or three witnesses. If they don't listen to that, bring it to the church. Don't listen to the church. They're to be separated from the church. And the desire is always that they would repent. Yes, Jeff. What is the ramification, I guess, when we talk about the Monica transfiguration? There were three apostles witnessing that also. Absolutely. Peter, James, and John. He could have, had, he could have done all that just to Peter. or Yeah, very um, well said. So what, I mean, I'm just wondering if, if the purpose of that is, again, the importance of witnesses or... It could be, Jeff. I, I don't know. It, that very well could be... Um, What's interesting is they were often the inner three. Yes. You know, Jesus obviously had the 12. Then he actually had a wider group of disciples, but there was the 12. And then of the 12, there was the inner three. Peter, James, and John would often accompany on certain tasks. Um, but you're right. It, it could be very well that the implication is they're witnesses as well. And that's why he chose the three. But we certainly, I think uh, Elijah and Moses, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. It's significant that the law and the prophets are there. Mm -hmm. You have the testimony. Um, Peter takes from this, when we get to 1 Peter, he talks about they didn't give 
cleverly crafted myths or fables. And one of the issues that they were wrestling with in First and Second Peter is with false teachers who were claiming that the apostles had read in, in, in error the notion that Jesus Christ was going to return a second time. But what Peter says is that they had their interpretation authenticated by what they had heard from the Mount of Transfiguration. He, in fact, he cites the, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Part of that citation is from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is all about the nations taking their stand against God and his anointed. But in Psalm 2, 7, it refers to this very line that, that God says to his son on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the idea is that one day the son is going to conquer over these enemies. And for Peter, that was authentication to his interpretation that Christ had to come again because he's going to reign over all of his enemies. And so Peter the apostle uses that to say, we had our interpretation authenticated on the Mount of Transfiguration. We know we're right. God authenticated it. You false teachers are saying Christ is not coming again. You're all wet. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yes, Laverne. And also that that's where Christ revealed his glory. Amen. And, and so, and then Peter erred there because he said, let's build three tabernacles, <laughs> right. which was a way of getting around going to the cross in the first place, the, um, giving and putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Christ. Right, right. He spoke presumptuously, didn't he? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Very well said. Yes, Bob. Another very important point because I just have been getting emails and stuff from yes. critical issues, readers and listeners. The important thing to establish also when the voice, which is God, saying, this is my son, listen to him, yes. it's showing that it's not binding to put people back under Moses, Amen. back under the law of prophets, because Moses, Jesus said elsewhere, Moses wrote of me. Amen. Okay, where? I believe the correct answer is, Deuteronomy 18, 15, is that the exactly, right? Exactly, that's right. Moses himself said that God would raise up a prophet like me, and when he does, listen to him. Amen. So the Mount of Transfiguration is showing that the teachings of Moses are not binding on the church. That's the Galatian era. Exactly. And, and so forth, and that's a very important implication of that. It is. So if Jesus is the greater Moses... God the Son, yes. the promised one, not only did he come as predicting the Old Testament, the virgin birth, yeah. um, everything that he did, his sinlessness, and so on, he speaks bindingly for God in a greater way than Moses ever did. Yes. Because he's the Son. Moses and Elijah disappear. Yeah, amen. The disciples didn't at that point understand it either. Yeah. Right. But Jesus... Uh, appointed them as apostles, and that's what happens. So right. Moses isn't binding on the church, but Jesus Christ is the greater Moses who spoke Amen. for God. That's implied there. Absolutely. And so we need to be, uh, it's, it's amazing how people want to be lawgivers and go to something else. That's right. And we can't let that happen because we'll be in bondage if somebody speaks for God that doesn't speak correctly and falsely binds and puts Christians into bondage. Amen. Well said. Yeah, so, so on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a blending of Deuteronomy 18.15, 
the, like Bob just said, there's going to be a replacement of Moses. If they won't listen to him, it'll be required of them. It's also a blending of Psalm 2-7, which is about this Messiah is going to come and rule and reign. And what's interesting is the latter, the blending of the Psalm 2-7, part of the glorification of Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration is a foreshadowing of the glory that he will have when he returns. Okay, so it's, it's both. And what Bob is saying is so important because we have to know that this is a new lawgiver. The old saying, there's a new sheriff in town, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're bound to him. And that's why if someone says, well, you have to keep kosher, no, we don't. We don't have to do that anymore. Jesus declared all foods clean. If he did that and he's the new Moses, we listen to him. So, yes, Tom. In Isaiah and in Revelation, there was a reference to the key of the house of David. In Matthew, we're looking at the passage where the keys, plural, of the kingdom Amen. are given to Peter. Is it, are there other keys? What are they? And my question is, is there a master key? <laughs> Very good. good. Very good. So these are, these are images that are being used to refer to the administrative authority. So Christ, because he's God, he has the authority over the entire kingdom. So think of the analogy that's being made in Isaiah 22. I think Laverne said it right, where you have typology. Isaiah 22, the king over the entire land, the kingdom, is Hezekiah. But the head of his household, the keys are given to Eliakim because of his faithfulness. So when Eliakim speaks, it's as if the king himself is speaking. In the same way, Jesus has all authority of the kingdom. Matthew 16, he bestows it upon his apostles, so they speak authoritatively for the king. So, for example, how many here have ever heard of red-letter Christians? Tony Campolo, Marxist? Emergence are that way. Exactly right, Bob. They won't listen to anything the apostle Paul says. Um, why? Because they don't like, for example, Romans 13, 4, the Apostle Paul says the government does not bear the sword in vain. It's a reinstitution of capital punishment from Genesis 9, 6. Well, Marxists don't like capital punishment. They never have, never will. They're always against it. So you can't have the Apostle Paul speaking for Christ, and if he doesn't, therefore you can get rid of capital punishment, one example. Okay, but what's the problem with that? The apostles speak authoritatively for Christ. The keys have been given to them to do binding and loosing. Okay? Now, let me put up here Matthew 18, 18, and this is where we see the same phrase again that we saw earlier in Matthew 16. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, again, it's in the subjunctive mood, shall have been bound in heaven. Again, we have our future perfect passives. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So again, the same statement needs to be made what you see in blue regarding God are future perfect passives which prove that God's moral decisions predate that of the believers. Again, it's not that Jesus is making the claim that the apostles write the checks and then God just puts his stamp of approval on whatever they say. No, the idea is that they're going to speak his very words, the very words that he has ordained. They're going to be those who transmit them. But you and I can do binding and loosing. Why? Because we have that very word. Are, are you with me? Um, does, does anybody remember in John chapter 14, the great promise that when the Holy Spirit comes, verse 26, I believe, that the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance all that Christ had spoken? Remembrance to whom? 
to the apostles. Why is that important? So that Christ's binding authoritative revelation is now given through the apostles and it's given to us. So when we come before someone who's sinning and we say, look at what the scriptures say under the new covenant, this is sin. That's authoritative binding. Not because we're apostles, but because we're using their words. Again, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 40, whoever receives you receives me, but whoever rejects you does not receive you, my apostles, does not receive me. Okay, that's the idea. Now, what I wanted to do is talk about some examples of binding and loosing, some that are somewhat controversial. I want you to think of, by the way, how many in here have one of these blue handouts? Do people have this by and large? There are a bunch of terms that we have. It's not exhaustive, but there are a bunch of terms, laws that we have under the new covenant. And what that shows us then, I'm sorry, Bob, I'll give you a stack there. Gotcha, thank you. Thanks, Bob. We'll hand them out to you. And I just want you to see that we're not lawless by any means. That a lot of the terms under the old covenant are synonymous with that which we see under the new covenant. But we are bound by a new lawgiver, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me talk about some issues of binding and loosing. One example that's come up over and over in my life is smoking. And I want to just use smoking for, uh, for a bit. How many times have you heard people say that you shouldn't smoke? And they'll try to... I, I don't believe it's a biblical issue. I think it's a general revelation issue. But I'll let you guys push back on that. So someone says you shouldn't smoke. After all, in the Bible, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. I think that that's a misreading of the, of the text, but we can certainly look at it together. But here's the point I want to bring up. When someone says you shouldn't smoke a cigarette, do we always have to appeal to the divine revelation? Couldn't we just say, in my opinion, you could get cancer if you keep smoking all those heaters, and that's not very good for you. Then therefore you shouldn't smoke. But instead of saying, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not smoke... Because if, if you really look carefully, I think you'll find that that's not something that's prohibited under the New Covenant. And again, I'm not saying it's good for you. I'm just saying I don't think it's a divine revelation issue. Are you with me? Um, so there's things that we can warn people about in life just from general revelation without saying, thus saith the Lord. Are, are you with me? Okay. One of the, the reasons I think that's important is sometimes you'll have non-Christians around us and what they think Christianity is, is not smoking or drinking. Are you with me? And they say, well, I don't smoke or drink, therefore I'm a Christian. And they have no idea that, truth be told, what Christianity is at its core is the forgiveness of sins through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, as we grow in maturity, there's a lot of unwise things that we'll leave behind. But again, we don't want to take someone and say... You're morally bound, thus saith the Lord, to not smoke this. Um, by the way, drinking, if you're drinking in excess, that is something that's bound. We're not to be drunk, but to be filled by the Spirit, right? But having a drink is not a sin. So here's my point. When we're telling someone something that they can't do, let's be careful that it's actually something that we find under the new covenant. The risk is if we don't do that, we become the lawgiver, and all of a sudden, Christ is subservient to our laws. We ran into an issue some years ago where we had to do church discipline 
uh, with a group, a couple, and they came up with all sorts of laws that were outside of the new covenant. And what's very difficult with that is they sound so pious. They're so strict that they wouldn't allow women to pass out the elements of communion. Well, wait a minute. Where under the new covenant? I know in 1 Timothy 2, women are not to exercise authority or teach over men in the church. But does that mean they can't serve at all? Well, no. And so we don't want to bind beyond what the scriptures bind. Okay? And again, that's one of my concerns when we come into the arena of vaccines, in the arena of various elements that are going on in our culture where people want to divide over whether you should have the vaccine or not, we're not bound under the new covenant to be unvaccinated or vaccinated. Now, you can make all sorts of general revelation arguments, but just don't bring the scriptures into it. And because that's true, we should never break fellowship over it. Do you guys remember the the phrase, in all of the essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity, I think is how the phrase went. The point being is that if something is not bound upon us in Scripture, we should afford liberty to our dear brothers and sisters. And the last thing we want to do is divide over things that aren't under the new covenant. Are you with me? Life's hard enough. Let's just be those who are new covenant Christians, knowing where true binding and loosing come from. Binding and loosing come from Jesus the King, The keys were bestowed upon the apostles who speak authoritatively in the scriptures. And because we have those scriptures, we can speak bindingly and authoritatively using the terms of the new covenant, and we can do even things like church discipline today. That's how we should think of binding and loosing. Again, binding is not binding Satan on a prayer walk. Remember, we said even Michael the archangel didn't dare do that. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So with that, I won't even start a new topic, I don't think, here today. But does anybody have any comments, questions? Uh, Yes, Ron in the back. And we'll come to you, Paul. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. Uh, We'll go Ron, and then we'll come back to Paul. So it's been a couple of years now, but in Christian college, Bible college, went to a conservative school and had all kinds of rules. And speak to that. Yes. If they're still doing those kinds of things, I don't know, but it was pretty conservative. And that was another time in the early 80s. So speak to all those rules that we had to do. You know, that's a great point. I had to do the same thing. I actually had to sign something where I wasn't going to dance, smoke, uh, movies, I, well, I don't know if movies was in this one. It was playing cards, though. That was one of them. So it sounds very uh, familiar, or sim- similar. But what's interesting is if I danced, you probably, that should be, that should be bound under the new, or the new, <laughs> that would be the abomination that causes desolation. Right? <laughs> but um, I agree. Those are things that are not, we're not bound to. And ironically, I pointed that out to one of the professors. He was the professor of hermeneutics at the college I went to. And he said, you're right, Eric, but just sign it. (laughs) So, um, by the way, with that, Ron, let me have Bob tell his story. Tell your story about how you weren't going to sign the... Because they had similar things at your college. And tell them what your friend said to you. Because it was just wisdom. Not that we're not... You're right, we're not bound by these things, but Bob had a good story regarding this. Well, I 
I've told some of my story before, but I was converted <clears throat> and left uh, as a junior chemical engineering, ended up at Bible College. Well, Iowa State didn't have a lot of rules, <clears throat> but they had a lot of them at Bible College. And one of them is you couldn't have sideburns lower than your earlobes. <laughs> so, I'll look for that one. I Bobby. did, though. Uh, probably looked a lot better when I shaved them off, but sure. you know. Nevertheless, <clears throat> me. having, when I was first converted, they brought me to a meeting in Storm Lake, Iowa, and I got up and shared my testimony. And there was a guy that came up to me and hugged me and said, they were excited that I'd become a Christian. I met him there. And he had run away and was serving the devil and ran away from anybody that would tell him what to do. And God converted him. Okay, so long story short, I end up back up here at a Bible college. And the guy had seen me. Here I am. And I was ready to get kicked out of Bible college after I just quit Iowa State because I read the rule book. And I thought, this is rinky-dink. That's the term I use. <laughs> what? you're not married, you can't live in a dorm. <clears throat> I mean, you have to live in a dorm. You can't have sideburns. You have to shave. You have to do this. You have to do that. And I said, what is this? This is nuts. So I was on my way, literally on my way to tell them, I will not sign this. This is ridiculous. And I was, I don't know, so many feet from the place where they probably would have just said, well, you're out. And here's this guy who was a converted hippie, if you're old enough to remember what that means. And he, here I am, a converted teenage Republican. <laughs> and he said, hey, man, cool, you're here. And I said, yeah, God called me to be a preacher. Well, what are you doing? I'm going to go tell the dean I won't sign the book. This guy looked at me and he said, What? Come with me to the prayer room. Will you come with me to the prayer room before you do that? I said, sure. So we went down there, and he said, well, why are you going to say what you're going to say? Well, this is ridiculous. You can't tell people they can't have sideburns, and they can't do this, and they can't do that. And he said, I understand. And I knew it was harder for him because he was a hippie before. And he said, well, look at it this way. He said, Every time they put a new, are you dead? First of all, yes. Are you, have you been baptized? I said, yes. I was, uh, not that many months before. Well, look at it this way. You're dead. Are you dead? I said, I didn't know I was dead. <laughs> so he got the Bible verse out, and he said, every time they give you a new rule, just look at it as another shovel of dirt on the old man. Mm. Now, not that this was binding, but he was right. helping me not get kicked out. Right. So he said, you got to live in the dorm, shovel of dirt. you got to shave, shovel of dirt. you got to cut your hair, shovel of dirt. I thought, cool, I am dead. I am baptized. Not that those rules are correct. Right. So I said, all right, I'll go sign the book. And so having got out of the prayer room, I went up, and I said to the dean, okay, I'll sign. And he just sat there and looked at me. I said, well, I told you I'll sign the book. And he, said, he looked at me. I said, what's wrong? He says, sideburns. Oh, okay. I'll go back and shave, and then I'll come back and sign the book. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't binding. But here's the problem. When you make rules that God never made, yeah. and 
make people look like they're good Christians because they look like you, it actually makes for more sin, not for more righteousness. Mm-hmm. One of the rules is you can't go to movies. Yeah. And so for three years, didn't go to a movie. Yeah. And when I got out, when I graduated, one of the guys said, what are you going to do now that you graduate? I said, well, I'm going to take my wife and we're going to go to a movie. <laughs> and they started laughing. Yeah. I said, well, why are you laughing at me? He, he said, we don't keep these rules. They had all grown up in that group. They thought I was stupid for keeping the rules that they signed and said they would. Wow. I'm not saying they were bad Christians. And so I still felt really bad, so we went and watched a movie about penguins in, in uh, the Arctic jumping into the water or something. Sure, sure. So it wasn't a Hollywood-type movie. That's great. But here's the bottom line. False binding does not make people sanctified. It makes them hypocrites. Yeah, amen. And the people that grow up under false binding can't wait to get away from it, or they can't wait to be the adult that makes the rules. Amen. Whether it's, in that case, it was Pentecostals or Evangelicals or Roman Catholics or whoever makes false rules, do not sanctify anybody. Exactly. And so I went and shaved. I didn't get kicked out. But had that the Lord sent this guy to be at the right place at the right time, and I was that far. And I don't know if they would have took me back at Iowa State or not. Right. But I'm glad I stayed because the professors there taught me how to learn the Greek, how to stay in the Bible. Even even the professors didn't believe those rules were right, but they needed yeah. a place where they exactly. could teach. That's my story. Ron, isn't it interesting? Bob showed wisdom with this man where the school was showing foolishness. But the wisdom that he showed is, I want to stay and learn the scriptures, and I'll abide even by these dumb human rules. But it is sinful what that school was doing. It's not right. And it is ironic that you have these theological institutions that are falsely binding right at the get-go. And it's usually the administrators that are doing it. The Bible professors know better, but it's the administrators who don't. And so Bob showed great wisdom to say, look, I'm going to go through this because I want a theological education but all the while knowing that that's false binding. And so we as the church never want to do that. Um, You know, there's all sorts of private institutions in the world, and they can come up with all sorts of their own rules. And we'll abide by them or we'll get out, right? Someone says you can't wear this or that in my restaurant, or you have to have shoes or whatever it is, we'll abide by them. But we have to know that when it comes to the church of the living God, the terms of the new covenant are here. And that's what's binding and that's what's loosing for us. So, but great example. I've had, that's a, I've, we've all had to deal with that, whoever has gone to a Christian college typically. So great question. I saw, Paul, you had a comment yeah. or a question. If you um, have a person like a son or a daughter or somebody that you know who's definitely on a downward spiral and you, you, know, uh, you want to stop it, you want to do what you can, it's so it's tempting to want to use the word of the Lord or whatever to uh, back up what you say. And uh, could you speak to that in some way? Yeah, you know, one thing that we have going for us is Ephesians 5, right, where the children are to obey their parents, right, in the Lord. And so the point is, is you know what's best for them, and they're morally bound to honor their parents and obey them. Right? So that's something that's contiguous or synonymous, or I should say, left over from the old covenant. That's what I'm trying to say. In other words, it's not that under the old covenant children had to obey their parents. Under the new covenant, not so much. No, it's the same. 
I mean, that's one of the, the glories of the new covenant is children are still bound to the authority that they had under the old covenant. So we can tell our children, look, I'm the boss of you for your good, and the Lord has ordained me to be an authority over you for your good. And so therefore, they have to obey us, not because we're trying to do them harm, but because we're trying to do them good, right? So that's how I would answer that. If a parent says, no, you know, you have to wear your seatbelt or you have to whatever to, to spare your child, they have to obey that as if they're obeying the Lord himself. So, yeah. Now, again, there are times where parents will be in error and we have to obey God rather than men. There are times. Um, we know we have to obey the governing authorities, right? But there are times we have to obey God rather than men. And so some children, because they have parents who are wayward and are doing evil, they may have to disobey them. But the point is, the norm is that we obey our parents. Does that help? Yeah, no, I'm just thinking that uh, I think uh, Brian and I were talking about this a little bit just uh, earlier, that uh, if, um, if we want to give somebody some good advice, some, some, some very sensible advice, it's too attractive sometimes to say, um, and, and God told me to tell you. Oh, in sure. Fact, uh, yes. This is my advice. Right, right. Yeah, you're right. We have to be careful how we do it as parents. We don't want to always have to say, thus saith the Lord. Say one thing. I want to just leave everyone with, this is a comment that was given by a scholar named R.T. France, great Matthew scholar. Listen to what he says about these, this future perfect passive construction in both Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. He says this, he says, It seems likely, therefore, that these repeated future perfects are there for a reason. He says, They change the sequence of actions. With simple futures, Peter would take the initiative and heaven would follow. Does everyone think about the logic there? So Peter would be writing the checks. God has to just back it up. But with future perfects, the impression is that when Peter makes his decision, it will be found to have been already made in heaven, making him not the initiator of new directions for the church, but the faithful steward of God's prior decisions. That's why he was given the keys, a faithful steward of what God had already ordained. That's the significance of the grammar in that text. I think that was well stated, and I couldn't say it any better than R.T. France. So with that, I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time together. I pray for Bob as he preaches the word, that we would have not just ears to hear, but we'd also be doers of the word, Lord, so that we may live lives that are conformed to your image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.